So last night, Steve gave us a talk on the defilements, those states of mind that really lead to suffering, to all of our suffering in all of its various forms. And this is a very important aspect of what we can learn about here, of what we really have to learn about here if we want this practice to be transformative by necessity, examining the defilements in the mind is a lot of what happens in our practice here, as you all know. It's a lot of the content that comes up in our minds, a lot of the the mental states that we're dealing with. But it's also important to remember that it's not the only thing that's happening here, which it can sometimes seem like, especially in these early days of the retreat. It's important to remember that there's also a whole set of mental qualities that lead to the end of suffering, that lead towards peace, that lead towards freedom. There's a whole set of wholesome, healthy mental states that also can and do arise in the mind when the conditions are right. So just as states of suffering, difficult states, states of unwholesomeness arise when the conditions are right, There are also healthy, wholesome, helpful states of mind that arise when the conditions are right. So one way of looking at what we're doing here is cultivating favorable conditions for the helpful and beautiful quality of minds to emerge kind of out of the morass of the defilements, even in the very midst of the defilements. If we were just sitting here engulfed in suffering in difficult states, that would really be useless. That wouldn't accomplish anything. So there's a lot more going on here than just the defilements, although that may not always be obvious. And it's just as important to recognize that. You know, recently there was the manure spread around outside, uh, that kind of environmental muck. But there's a reason for it. There's good things that can come of it. When it's applied properly, then it helps our beautiful flowers to grow. It helps healthy food to grow. So there's that balance between uh, what's what's unwholesome, what's unhelpful, and what's helpful, what can be learned from it. So tonight I want to talk about the helpful qualities of mind that lead to the kind of wisdom that Steve spoke about last night, that remove the defilements from the mind and replace them with peace. And the qualities that I want to talk about uh, are commonly called the seven factors of enlightenment, or the factors of insight, or the factors of wisdom, some different ways of translating it. Steve talked about how the term uh, defilements can sound a little heavy-handed in our Judeo-Christian culture, but there's ways in which it's appropriate, that kind of seriousness of tone is appropriate because of the seriousness of those mental states. And in the same way, the term enlightenment can also sound, can sound a little highfalutin, can sound a little exalted, can sound like something that's maybe beyond our ken. But there's a way in which that term is also appropriate because of the nobility of these mental states, because of their ability to purify the mind, to bring happiness. So just not to be too daunted by that term enlightenment, that this really refers to beautiful qualities of mind that are available to all of us. And they're states that are wonderful in and of themselves. They're very delightful, uh, sublime when we're experiencing them. And more importantly, perhaps, they're also pivotal in the development of wisdom. They're pivotal in the development of the movement of the mind towards awakening, towards liberation. So they have so much potential for good that they're really worthy of this term, uh, enlightenment, insight, wisdom. There's this quote uh, from the Buddha about these qualities of mind that emphasizes their nature and their importance. He says that just as in a peaked house, all of the rafters slope toward the peak, incline toward the peak, join at the peak, Even so, a yogi who cultivates and honors the seven factors of wisdom slopes towards freedom, inclines towards freedom, and tends towards freedom. So that's kind of an interesting metaphor. It's almost like he's saying that if we cultivate these qualities of mind, it really puts us on a slippery slope towards freedom, a slippery slope towards enlightenment. 
that we're, we're on that path and we're, kind of, we're just waiting for the momentum to build, that they're going to lead us there eventually. So for all of kind of the muck of the defilements that we find in our minds, this is really a path of great optimism, of great hope, that it's actually possible to transform the mind, to recondition the mind, to learn a new way to be and to live. Steve also spoke last night about the lawfulness of the arising of mental states, that mental states don't just arise at random for no reason. They arise due to causes and conditions. How the defilements all arise is due to causes and conditions. All the conditions that have developed throughout our lifetimes, all of the forces coming to bear in the present moment. And they also all disappear due to causes and conditions. That's the dharma. That's the truth of how the mind operates. And we can see this all around us in the external environment. We actually take it quite for granted in the external environment, in the natural world. It's very easy to see that each plant, each animal, has its own particular environment, its own particular niche, the conditions that it needs to grow and to prosper. And we can see that just around here in the natural world as we walk outside in a retreat, we become very sensitive to our environment. And I was noticing uh, since I've been here that there's a little spot under the pine trees on that path that leads down to the parking lot where there's a little cluster of pines over here. And if you look under them, there's just a little spread of white wood asters, this kind of rangy, uh, low plant that has these very delicate little white uh, daisy-like flowers on it. And you can see how they just grow right under the canopy of the pines in that very particular environment, in that deep shade and the particular mulch and soil that's found under the pine trees. And if you, if you move those asters even, even just a yard away out into the grass, into the lawn, where there's more sun, different soil conditions, they would die. They wouldn't make it there. They have their own particular niche carved out. And you can also see here in the front of the building where there's the, the circular garden planting in front of the steps. There's the day lilies there and the butterfly weed and other sun-loving plants that really need a lot of full sun to blossom and to grow. And if you took those and you put them under the pines, they would also die and fade away because they can't make it there. They have their other set of conditions that they need there. So we can work with nature. We can work along with the basic laws of nature. We can compromise to some extent with nature, but we can't really fight it. If we try to fight the laws of nature, we're just bound to be disappointed because the world does not work that way. And as modern humans, we can forget that we're also part of the natural world. Our bodies and minds operate according to the same universal laws of nature that the plants and the natural environment, the other animals are subject to. And you've all seen for yourselves that we can't just conjure up by force of will or desire the experience that we want in any given moment. There's a lawfulness to it, to what arises, to what we're presented with. It's determined by the conditions of our internal climate, our internal environment. It's those conditions that determine what sprouts. And then, as Steve was saying, we have to decide how we're going to work with it. We have to decide what we're going to cultivate and how. So there are certain key conditions, both in the natural world around us and in the natural world within us. There are factors that determine what will grow and what will wither. In the external environment, sunlight is often the main determining factor. And as it turns out, in the internal environment, awareness, or what we call mindfulness, is often the determining factor. So just as particular plants need a certain amount of sunlight to grow, Certain mental states need a certain amount of mindfulness to grow. That's the climate that they seek. There's certain mental states that flourish in the mental darkness of denial, distraction, inattention. But they wither and fade when they're exposed to the light of mindfulness. And those are the defilements or the hindrances. They can't uh, take root. They can't spread. They can't flourish in the light of mindfulness. And there's these other states that do flourish in the light of mindfulness, but go into decline in the shade of inattention. And those are these factors of enlightenment that I want to talk about tonight. 
And just as Steve did last night, I'll describe each of these in a little more detail, more specifically, a little further on in the talk. But just to kind of give you a, a feel for what they include, uh, as I said, there's seven of them. It begins with mindfulness at the top of the list, followed by uh, what's called investigation, investigation of states, investi investigation of dhammas, followed by energy, followed by rapture or happiness or joy, followed by calm, followed by concentration, and last but not least, equanimity. And I'd like to at least mention uh, the poly terms for these because the English translations are a little uh, problematic. So what we call mindfulness in Pali, the original language of the Buddhist teachings that uh, we teach from here, uh, that term is sati, sati. And it's translated as mindfulness. There's other possible interpretations. The second one is dhamma-vichaya, what we translate as investigation of states or something along those lines. That's a particularly thorny one to try to translate. Then what we generally translate as energy in the Pali is called virya, virya, which really has a much richer meaning than just the English word captures. And the one we translate as joy or happiness is piti, which again has a very specific meaning that's different from the usual meaning of the English word joy. Calm is the term pasadi, pasadi. Concentration is samadhi, which many of you may have heard. That's a term that uh, is used a lot in its polyform. And equanimity is upeka, upeka. And I like to mention the poly terms, not to make it daunting or too academic or anything like that, but just to give you a sense that the English terms that we're using are really rough translations. They're really approximations of these very specialized, very uh, rich, refined terms that have come out of the original language of the teachings. And I found it for myself to be helpful to remember that the English terms are really just approximations, so not to get caught, too caught up in whatever connotations those English words might have for you in ordinary usage, to remember that the specific sense that we're using them in here might be a little bit different, might be more complex. So depending on the inner climate of our minds, certain mental states will be able to take root in the mind and flourish, either those related to suffering on the one hand or those related to the removal of suffering on the other hand. And fortunately, the inner climate of our minds can be altered. It's actually easier to alter the inner climate of our minds than it is to alter the external world over which we actually are increasingly finding more and more we have little control. We can influence conditions in our minds so that they're more conducive to the kind of mental states that we'd like to live with. And this isn't usually in a very sudden, dramatic way, although at times it may be. But it's usually gradually, and over time, with patience and perseverance. And that's exactly what we're doing here through this practice. We're reconditioning the mind. <clears throat> So in both cases, both for uh, the case of the defilements and for these factors of enlightenment, the Buddha's instructions were simply to learn to detect and observe their behavior, to notice when they're present and to see how they operate in the mind. His instructions were not to either destroy them in the case of the defilements or to manufacture them or attempt to manufacture them in the case of the enlightenment factors. And hopefully you're picking up from the instructions and the talks and everything that we say here so far, and it would be pretty hard not to miss this at this point, that um, our task here is just to be mindful of the various experiences passing through our minds and not to try to change them. And that's a good thing because, as you've noticed, it's not actually possible to control them. The instructions from the discourse or uh, the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness, which is the, the really core teaching that gives the basic instructions for the style of practice that we're offering here. The instructions on uh, mindfulness of these factors is phrased something like this. It says, when an enlightenment factor is present, one knows this enlightenment factor is present. When an enlightenment factor is absent, one knows 
this enlightenment factor is absent. And one knows how the enlightenment factor arises and how it comes to be developed and perfected. So we're not making this up. We haven't pulled these instructions out of a hat. This is the practice that was offered by the Buddha and has been practiced by generations over centuries and millennia and really uh, test-driven. It's been beta-tested. So this teaching is not about trying to either get or get rid of any particular mental state. Not about trying to get or get rid of any particular mental state. Just to learn as much as possible about them, to become familiar with them, to become intimate with them even. One thing that can be helpful to remember as we start to bring the factors of enlightenment into the realm of our awareness is that, in general, the factors of enlightenment are more subtle than the defilements. And that's a pretty broad generalization. It's not true in all cases, certainly. Uh, Both the defilements and the enlightenment factors can manifest in a very wide variety of ways. The defilements can get very subtle, and you may have seen this in your own practice, As you get quieter, the defilements can get really sneaky. They can start to take all sorts of forms. They're almost like viruses that mutate. Once we find one antidote, they change into another form that can withstand it. So we're constantly uncovering deeper and more subtle levels of the defilements. And conversely, the enlightenment factors can also sometimes be very powerful, uh, very pervading joy with experiences of rapture and visions, and and all sorts of very dramatic uh, experiences, intense concentration that's really riveting. So those things can happen. But in general, we could say that the enlightenment factors tend to be more subtle than the defilements. And especially in our early practice, or early in a retreat like this, when we're not so familiar with them, it can be easy to overlook them. We spend a lot of time learning to recognize and work with the defilements, because that's what's mostly presenting itself most strongly. They're the squeaky wheels that call most aggressively for our attention. But it's also important to remember to keep an eye out for these more subtle mental qualities of the seven factors of enlightenment. They often slip below the radar if we're used to a lot of drama and intensity and confusion in the mind. When one of the enlightenment factors starts to get stronger, our subjective experience might actually be that nothing's happening because it feels like a void after kind of the big storm of the defilements. It's not really that nothing's happening. It's just that we haven't quite tuned our receptor of mindfulness yet to pick up on them. We haven't quite learned how to recognize the signs of these subtler experiences. So the first step in learning about them directly in our experience is simply learning to detect them, to recognize them. So to help with that effort, I'll give some description now of these seven factors. But as with the descriptions of the defilements, the point here is not just to give you some set of abstract theoretical knowledge. We often present important teachings in these kinds of lists, which have been used historically over the millennia. Uh, They date back to the times when this was an oral tradition and had to be passed uh, by memory from person to person, teacher to student. And they're a convenient way for organizing kind of our our conceptual understanding of what we're doing here. They're kind of like a field guide to the mind. If you spend time out in nature, you may have a field guide that you can take out with you. You know, it's got all these lists of the plants or the birds or the flowers or whatever it might be. My husband is actually a bit of an amateur naturalist, and when we come up here together, he gets to go out and go hiking. And if he's forgotten his field guide, he's very disappointed because he likes to check out all of the local trees and all the ferns and you know, check off all the items on his list that he's found. So these lists of mental factors that we teach here are kind of like a field guide for our minds. They explain to us what we're likely to encounter when we start exploring our inner environment. And they give us some pointers on how to identify it, what the distinguishing features are. And one of the reasons that we are so grateful to the Buddha and all the generations of practitioners who have handed these teachings down to us is that they provided us with this guide. They've passed down these teachings so that we don't have to start the research into our own minds from nothing. We don't have to start from zero. 
we already have this base of a whole bunch of prior research that we can leverage off of, that we can build on. So we're not unprepared when we venture in to explore our minds. So we want to really learn about these states directly in our own minds. You know, we have the guides, we can hear the information, we can uh, have some idea of what we're looking for or trying to pick out, but we really have to uh, connect with them in our own direct experience to know what they really are, to really connect with their particular texture, their feeling, their effects, their behavior. So as I describe each of these factors, you might want to reflect some on whether this is something you may have encountered in your own practice, whether it's something that sounds familiar that you can recognize. Maybe you've seen it, but you never actually realized what it was. Or if it's not something that you've consciously noticed yet, then you can make a mental note of some of the distinguishing features so that you can recognize it when it appears again. So the first in the list of factors of enlightenment, as I said, is sati, or mindfulness, often called mindfulness. We use lots of different words for this fundamental factor of mind. Uh, Here we often call it awareness. You may hear it called knowing, or noticing, or even consciousness. And these are all pointing towards the same quality of mind. Uh, Mindfulness is really the primary factor that defines the mental climate. So it's appropriate that it's the first one in the list. And it's in kind of a class by itself because it really balances and initiates all of the other mental factors in the list. That's actually why this style of mindfulness practice that we're doing here was developed all these centuries ago. Because mindfulness is really the key to cultivating the mind. It's like the sunlight of the mind. All the beautiful qualities and states of mind that we as human beings are capable of grow in its presence. And conversely, it withers every unwholesome state that might lead to suffering. And we've been talking about awareness now for three days, and you've been exploring it directly in your practice for at least that long, many of you much longer. But mindfulness is so simple, so obvious, that it's really quite easy to overlook or to misinterpret. We tend to think that that really can't be all there is to it. There's got to be more to it. It's got to be more complex or more profound somehow. But it's really just simply knowing what's happening right now in this moment, just what's going on. Knowing that you're sitting, knowing that you're hearing, what the sensations in your body are, if there's a thought passing through the mind, an emotion, whatever it might be. It's just really that simple. Of course, there are different degrees of mindfulness. It may be more or less continuous, just individual moments or a long string of moments. And it may be more or less penetrating or subtle, depending on the other factors of mind that might accompany it. As Steve said last night, awareness is not enough. It needs to have the correct understanding and other supportive factors along with it to make it really transformative. But mindfulness itself is just extremely simple and natural, just knowing. The trick, if there is one, is that it's not an intellectual knowing. You can't think your way to mindfulness. It's not knowing via the middleman of thoughts, but just direct knowing, direct experiencing. I remember very clearly when I first kind of got this, And uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say how far into my practice it was. I think I had sat two, three-month retreats already when this this happened. But I was um, having my first retreat with a Burmese teacher that would become a very important teacher to me here in the the States. It was just a week-long retreat. And um, this is a teacher who very much emphasized continuity of attention to the breath. So I was really working hard, really trying to pay attention to the breath, notice everything I could about it so that I could go into my interview and give a really clear report of everything that I'd seen. And I went in for my first interview. I was terribly nervous, really just petrified, uh, very uh, daunted by this very formidable teacher. And I sat down and, and bowed and started to give my report, you know, saying the things I'd noticed about the breath and really trying hard to give a proper report. And not very far into it, the teacher just held up his hand and he just said, stop. <laughs> 
And he said, okay, put your finger on your nose. And he clearly understood that I was just missing something basic about the practice I was doing. So here I am trying to, you know, look like I'm a, a proper yogi, a good meditator, and I'm sitting with my finger under my nose. <laughs> and he said to me, what do you feel? And I'm sitting here, and I'm trying to think, what is it that he wants me to feel? <laughs> What's something really profound that I can notice about this experience? <laughs> What am I supposed to be feeling? What am I supposed to be doing? You know, I just completely, completely wrapped up in my thoughts about what was supposed to be happening and what was supposed to be going on. And I was at a complete loss. I couldn't come up with anything. So he waited for a few minutes and he said, well, how about pressure? So I checked. I felt, you know, I closed my eyes and felt my nose. And sure enough, I could feel pressure. I said, yeah, yeah, I can feel pressure. And he said, okay, well, what else? And I was lost again. <laughs> I couldn't find anything else. He said, well, what about warmth? And I checked in again, yeah, there's warmth there. I could even feel like around the edges where my finger was touching, there was some coolness. There was a gradient of temperature. So I told him that. And we just went on like that. He's like, well, how about tingling? Uh, yeah, I could feel some tingling. How about throbbing? I noticed, yeah, I could feel a little bit of that pulse where my finger was connecting with my nose. And it kind of went on like that for a little while. And he said, okay, this is mindfulness. This is all it is. And it was, it was really, I got, it was a, a mortifying experience. <laughs> But I really finally, at that point, got that this is all there is. I'd been trying to make it into something much more complicated. I'd just been confused, really, about what was what in the mind. I hadn't realized that the quality of mindfulness was just that, just that really simple awareness. So the remaining factors in this list are divided into two groups, which is an important part of this teaching, actually. There's one group of three energizing or uplifting qualities of mind. So three of these are considered to be factors that uplift, that energize, that give vitality to the mind. And there's another group of three calming or tranquilizing qualities of mind that are considered to settle the mind, to calm it down, to quiet it. So there's this larger message to this teaching that freedom or enlightenment arises out of a balance of alertness on the one hand and tranquility on the other. So it's not just that we want to be blissed out and euphoric. There's really a kind of a disconnect in that. If you think about when, we're, when you're really giddy, when you're really euphoric, there's a way in which we can't really connect with what's going on. We're very wrapped up in that energy. And we also don't just want to be totally chilled out, where we're so calm, so tranquil, so kind of sinking into uh, just calmness and relaxation, that again, there's a kind of a disconnect and we can't really contact what's actually happening. Instead, we want to find just the right balance between the two, the right amount of energy and the right amount of tra tranquility, where the mind really becomes receptive to the true nature of experience, where the mind's really in balance. And as we practice mindfulness, both the energizing and the tranquilizing factors naturally become stronger. And they also come into better balance, so that we're less likely, on the one hand, to drift into restlessness and euphoria, and on the other, less likely to just drift off into a stupor or a haze. So the three energizing factors are investigation, energy, and joy, which makes sense. And the, as I said before, the poly terms for these are very rich and somewhat difficult to translate. So we really need to explore and learn in our own experience what these actually mean, what qualities they actually point to. So the second factor, this factor of investigation, people are, are often confused by what this actually means. So first and foremost, it's not an intellectual kind of investigation. You know, the, the term investigation in English often has the connotation of some kind of academic or scientific kind of inquiry. And it's not, that's not the sense of it here. Just like mindfulness is not an intellectual kind of knowing, the kind of in investigation that we're talking about is not an intellectual investigation. It's not an analysis. Instead, it's really a drawing near to experience, a becoming intimate with experience so that we can more fully experience it and learn about it more directly. It's kind of like drawing near to a flower, like take a rose. We may see a rose bush kind of across the lawn on the other side of the field, and we can say, oh yeah, that's a rose bush. 
But unless we really draw near to it, we won't be able to see what exactly is the color, what exactly is the texture of those petals, what exactly is the, the scent of it, the aroma that comes off of it. We have to draw near. Or another example might be the pine grove here on the backside of IMS. You know, you can kind of stand, you can stand on the front lawn and you can see that the trees are back there. You can look back and see, oh yes, there's a pine grove behind the building. But until you actually go back behind there and walk in among the trees, you won't know about the feel of the needles on the earth. You won't know about the scent coming off of the pine trees, the particular quality of the light filtering through, what might be growing in the undergrowth, the ferns and the flowers, the birds that might be living back there, the chipmunks. So there's a, that's a very different quality of knowing when we really draw near and plunge into an experience, really explore it from within it. There's a way in which we can, we can miss the trees for the forest, just as we can miss the forest for the trees and not get the bigger picture if we're too caught up in minutia. If we just look at things on kind of a superficial level, on a high level, then we can miss the really intimate understanding of what the experience is about. And it's really the quality of our attention that makes experience interesting, that makes things interesting. When we bring a sense of wonder to our experience, then we find things to wonder at. So it's this very act of drawing near that creates the opportunity for interesting details to emerge. That rose or that fir grove might not be so interesting from a distance, but once we're right up in it, once we're right up close to it, then there's all sorts of fascinating details that can catch our attention. It's not that something has to be interesting a priori for it to be worthy of our attention. And you may see this effect in any ordinary activity throughout the day here. One common uh, thing that people report is the sense of hearing. You know, we sit here in the hall and it's so quiet and we start to notice just every sound at times. The sound of the lawnmower, the sound of the birds, the sound of people walking around very far away in the building, going about their business, the cars passing the people breathing next to us, and we start to notice just, just every noise. And if we're receptive and attentive, then all of these sounds can really become interesting in a way that uh, we never would have anticipated. So what we mean by investigation is this mental movement of drawing nearer to experience, becoming more intimate with experience, really plunging into experience. You could think of the example of a sponge when it's wet. It's, it's impossible to say where the sponge ends and the water begins. The sponge is saturated. So when the mind is really immersed in investiga investigating some experience, it's kind of like that. It's saturated in the experience. It's really plunged into the experience. The next energizing factor is what's usually called energy itself. This is a translation of virya which is a particularly difficult and sometimes problematic word to translate. It has lots and lots of different aspects, and for different people, different aspects of it are, are more meaningful or more uh, charged at different times, more juicy at different times. So it has aspects both of courage and of surrender. It has aspects both of perseverance and of acceptance. You can think of it as the ability to stand firm in the face of whatever arises in our experience. A good example of this comes from the parable of the Buddha's experience on the night of his enlightenment, the night of his liberation. There's uh, the story many of you are probably familiar with that the Buddha was attacked by the armies of Mara. So Mara is kind of the embodiment of all the forces of the defilements. He came to the Buddha and he sent him fear and he sent him lust and he sent him self-doubt and just everything, everything that we experience here, sitting on the cushion, all the same stuff. But the Buddha just kept his seat. He just kept his ground. He didn't fight back. He just held his ground. There's the, the gesture of the statue that we have in, in the hall here, which is the gesture that the Buddha was said to have made in response to Mara's attacks, calling on the earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was sitting. And that really captures this quality of virya it's not an aggression, it's just a steadfastness, this quality of, I'm not budging. You can kind of see that in this gesture in the statue. I'm just staying right here. This is my place, not somewhere else, just right here in this moment. 
So it's that ability, that courage to face whatever arises, not attacking it, but not retreating it, just simply facing it. And there's an inherent nobility and strength in that quality. It's a quality that all of us here are capable of, have in fact been mobilizing throughout this retreat. It's impossible to make it through an experience like this without a lot of this kind of energy. And over time, we gradually learn how to make a balanced effort. In the beginning, we tend to push too hard. We tend to strive too hard. We tend to try too hard. Not for everybody, but for a lot of us, that happens. And then we get exhausted. Others of of us will tend to, to try not enough, not make enough effort to relax too much and just kind of be falling asleep. So the right effort, as Steve spoke about some too last night, is gentle but persistent. It doesn't really take that much effort to meet just one moment. If you think about it, it's a very gentle effort just to know what's happening now. It's mostly the effort just to get out of the way and to let awareness do what it does naturally. You could think of it kind of as the quality of energy that a butterfly needs to land on a flower. How much energy does it take for a butterfly to land on that tip of a flower? Not a whole lot. The butterfly doesn't have a lot of strength to bring it into play. The butterfly doesn't plunge down and mash the flower. It just comes gently. It sees where it's going, and it takes that energy just just to fall into that particular spot. So for us, it's the same, just enough energy the bare minimum of energy that's required just to land right here in this little moment. The trick, or the catch, is that we have to make that effort over and over and over and over and over. But when we, when we can find that balance of energy, just making a small amount of energy, but repeatedly, then it start, the energy starts to become very fluid. It starts to become very self-sustaining. When we're making that right balanced effort, then we don't get exhausted. It feels very sustainable, very doable, because we're not caught in this big project of trying to be mindful all day long. We're just being mindful this one moment, and then there's another moment, and another, and that's doable. We can do that. And that kind of gentle but persistent effort really comes with practice through trial and error. So we make too much effort, we see how we get exhausted, how we get tight, and then we back off, and we make too little effort. And we see how we just droop and disconnect. And, we, and then we make more effort and swing back the other way. And just through the process of trial and error, we gradually arrive at the middle path, at the middle way, at the place of balanced effort. The last of the energizing factors is joy, which is a very important part of this path and can often be overlooked. You know, things can get very serious here. I was just talking to another teacher a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were at the family retreat together, which is a very different environment from this, with the kids and the teens and the parents running around all over the place. And uh, he's saying, yes, the adult retreats can get very serious. <laughs> and that's how, kind of how it can feel at times. We can get just too serious, really. There's not enough joy coming into our practice to sustain us. But joy is actually a natural result at some point of what we're doing here and also an essential element of it. But it's not the kind of joy that we're normally accustomed to thinking about. It's a spiritual joy. So it's not based on sensual or sensory experiences. It's not based on some pleasant experience. It's the kind of joy that comes from being really intimate with experience, really fully in the flow of the vitality of life. Joy at the feeling of richness of everything that comes with being alive. And that can manifest as a kind of a keen interest in what we're observing. When things really get fascinating, there may be a sense of lightness in the body and mind. We may even sometimes get goosebumps or a sense of exhilaration, uplifting. And these are all aspects of spiritual joy and a very natural and healthy part of this path. And once we get a taste of this kind of spiritual joy, the things that we're used to turning to for pleasure in our lives can actually start to seem a bit drab. They don't quite measure up to, to snuff after we experience this far better, far satisfying kind of joy that comes from uh, awareness, that comes from contact with what's going on. So these are the three factors that help to energize and uplift the mind. If, condi- if conditions are favorable, 
then we may be able to do something to help arouse them. But it's important not to push because we can't force any of these factors, just as we can't force a plant to bloom, which is fine because actually all we really need to do is to be mindful. Even without any conscious effort, just awareness itself will lead to all of these factors. Mindfulness will lead to investigation. We want to see more clearly what we're noticing. Investigation will lead to energy. When, once we really get interested in what's going on, and then we find it easy to keep paying attention, to look more closely. And investigation will lead to joy. An interested, engaged attention that's connecting with the flow of experience is just naturally delightful. So if we just practice mindfulness, the three energizing factors will naturally grow because we're creating a mental climate that's favorable for them. That's their niche. After the energizing factors in the list come the tranquilizing factors, which again are calm, concentration, and equanimity. Calm is really the willingness to just rest in the present moment. So it's a sense of not leaning forward into the next moment, or not leaning back towards the past, into what's already gone, or away from anything that's happening just in this present moment but just a deep sense of relaxation into what's true in this moment. And when we're able to do that, then our whole system relaxes and calms down. When calm is present in the mind, then the body also tends to calm down. When it becomes very strong, we may feel amazed that we ever had trouble making it through a sitting. It just seems so easy. We may feel amazed that we ever struggled with our emotions. Everything seems to just slow down and get simple. But calm may also come just for brief moments here and there. It may seem like a pause in the storm when we we feel like we can take a breath and relax, if only for a moment. So it's important to recognize those moments too, the brief moments as well as the powerful ones. Next in the list is concentration, which is the ability of the mind to settle and focus on what we notice really giving an experience our full attention. So not necessarily staying with just one experience for a long time, but being fully focused and present with each changing experience as it arises. And it manifests as a feeling of collectedness, of composure, of stillness, as a lack of distraction. We may stop feeling the constant pull towards distractions, towards all of the little distractions that pop up in our mind. And the wandering of the mind may finally abate a little bit. We may get a little bit of relief from that constant draw towards thinking and everything it promises. We may even get a lot of relief. The wandering mind may calm down quite a lot. When concentration gets stronger is when we tend to actually feel like we're meditating. You know how you can get this feel like, okay, now I'm really meditating. That's usually due to the presence of concentration. It's like everything just clicks and we're kind of in the zone, in the meditative zone. And we can actually feel like we've really shifted into a completely different place in the mind, a completely different gear. And being aware of what's arising starts to seem very easy. So when concentration becomes strong and continuous in that way, then it's really not so subtle most of the time. We tend to know that something really quite unusual is happening in the mind. But it too can come in more subtle ways. Every moment that we're mindful, that we're aware of something, concentration is also necessarily there, or else the mind would not be connecting with anything. So in any moment that we're really noticing an experience, concentration is necessarily there. So even if you're not feeling particularly concentrated, you can uh, have faith that you really are cultivating more more concentration than you probably realize. And at the end of the retreat, I guarantee you that you will realize that you are far more concentrated than when you got here. It will become very apparent at that point. So concentration is an important quality of the mind for what we're doing here. It's on this list of enlightenment factors. But it's also important to recognize that it comes in many different forms and not to get particularly attached to any one of them. It's important not to define our entire practice just in terms of this one quality of mind. And last but also not least, very far from least in the list is equanimity, 
which Kamala began discussing this afternoon and will be continuing to expand on through the rest of the retreat. And as she said, this equanimity is really the ability of the mind to remain steady and balanced in the face of whatever arises, not getting excited about experiences that are really pleasant, not getting excited about experiences that are really painful, and not just spacing out during experiences that are just kind of neutral, but really meeting everything that arises with an even-handed attention and respect. Equanimity was praised very highly by the Buddha repeatedly throughout his teachings as one of the highest kinds of happiness because it brings deep peace, persistent peace, reliable peace. It brings a deep and unshakable sense of calm and presence with our experience, whatever it might be. And we often notice this on retreat when we see ourselves not having a habitual response to some stimulus. So we may notice some sound in the hall that for days has just really been bothering us, the lawnmower or a sneeze. And at one point it arises and the mind just doesn't react. It's just okay. There's no particular reaction for or against that that experience. It just comes and goes. We notice it and the mind remains equanimous. The mind remains balanced in the face of it. I remember another point when I was practicing uh, in Burma and I had just come to the center that was in the city, which is, can be very noisy in and of itself. But at this particular time, um, this was a hall that was very similar to this, but instead of the windows, because of the climate there, they had doors which opened out. So there's this terrace all around the hall, and it turned out that there were these birds nesting over every doorway. There was a little ledge, and they could make their nest above it, so they're just right you know, outside every single opening into the hall. And I don't know what kind of birds these were. I never figured it out. But boy, were they loud. And I I remember weeks just sitting there cringing, you know, if only those birds would just shut up. (laughs) And my practice proceeded. You know, I kept making the best effort I could, and things moved along. And a few months later, another yogi came, another American yogi, a young woman who was about my age. And we were speaking just a little bit. I was kind of helping her get oriented to being at the center there. And she said, man, what about those birds? (laughs) And I had to think a second to remember what she was talking about because I had just, at some point, become equanimous towards the sound. I'd noticed it. You know, it's not like I didn't hear it, but it just didn't get a charge out of me anymore. And I was like, oh, yeah, the birds. I said, you know, it'll be okay. So these three tranquilizing qualities, the calm, concentration, and equanimity, help to calm and steady the mind. But again, there's nothing that we really need to do besides just be mindful. The tranquilizing factors will automatically arise naturally as a result of the energizing factors. So it's interesting the way that this works, that we actually need to muster a certain amount of energy in the mind before it can then relax. And many of you have observed this for yourselves here, that our first task when we come on retreat is often about arousing some energy, arousing what's called launching energy to kind of get us into the flow, to get us into the groove here. And then other things follow from that. But once that's happened, the tranquilizing factors tend to follow naturally. So the quality of joyful interest that comes from energy allows the mind to just relax into the present moment. And a joyful, engaged mind very naturally then calms down and relaxes. When the mind gets calm and settles down, then again, very naturally, it becomes easier to concentrate and just connect with what's going on, which in turn leads to this very even-minded attitude of equanimity towards what we notice. So that's the basic principle behind how these qualities of mind operate that one tends to lead to the next in the list, kind of down the line, culminating, really, with equanimity. But that doesn't mean that these factors always arise in this kind of strict order. Obviously, the mind does not operate in such a mechanical way. So it's not like we won't experience any tranquility until we really cultivated just endless energy. Uh, In practice, these qualities develop in parallel. So at one point, one may be more obvious, and another point, another at different times, different ones may be stronger or more obvious. 
But everything grows from just from that first seed of mindfulness. Everything stems from that. That's the foundation for everything that follows. And again, our main task with all of these factors is simply to learn to recognize them, to be mindful of them. In fact, every time there's a moment of mindfulness recognizing one of the factors, we're strengthening that factor. We're planting a seed. We're sowing the karma for that factor to arise at a future time in the mind again. So mindfulness is all that we absolutely absolutely need. It's the only essential tool. Although, of course, there are many other tools and techniques that we can add to our toolbox. That's the only essential one. Whatever else might be going on in our practice, if we're just... If we, if we lose track of what we ought to be doing, what's going on, we always know we can take refuge in mindfulness. That will always serve our purpose. That will always serve us well. And the instructions that we're giving you here are all pointing towards cultivating all of these qualities of mind, really. So every time that we talk to you about being aware, we're encouraging you to cultivate mindfulness, to incline the mind towards mindfulness and right effort. Every time we encourage you to kind of get curious about what's going on and investigate it, we're encouraging you to cultivate this quality of investigation, of drawing near to experience. When we talk to you about the great potential of this practice and try to inspire you, we're trying to arouse some joy so that everything's not quite so serious. When we tell you to just relax, we're asking you to incline the mind towards a feeling of calm. When we talk to you about maybe grounding the attention, some simple, reliable sensation like the breath or another uh, object that you might use to steady the mind, that's an inclination of the mind towards concentration. And when we tell you over and over again that you don't need to get excited about any particular experience that's arising in your mind, that's inclining the mind towards equanimity. So there's a method to the madness here. It's not that when we tell you to just relax, we think that you're going to be able to just flip a switch and relax the mind. But all of these instructions are a way of doing what the Buddha called inclining the mind. The Buddha really encouraged us to incline our minds towards these qualities of mind, which is a way of saying that we can consciously cultivate a taste for them, an appreciation for them, that we can begin or continue to think about them as something that we value that we really hold as a core value, something that we aspire to, something that we see the importance and the beauty of. And one of the purposes of this talk here tonight is to encourage you to do just that, to get you thinking about these factors in an explicit and positive way. And the equanimity practice that Kamala is offering is another way of doing this, of very consciously and deliberately inclining the mind towards equanimity bringing it into our consciousness as something that we can cultivate, something we can nurture, something that we can aspire to and realize that it's not just this exalted term of enlightenment, but that's something that's really within our reach, that's within our capacity as human beings. Another way of thinking about this practice is as a process of developing our taste for the factors of enlightenment. And that's an interesting concept, a process of developing a taste as kind of an acquired taste for the factors of enlightenment and weakening the taste that we spent our lifetimes acquiring for the defilements. Being mindful of both the defilements and enlightenment factors is the first step in this process. So the more attention we pay to the defilements, the more we come to realize how much suffering they bring us. And the more we pay attention to the enlightenment factors, the more we come to realize how much peace and happiness they bring us. And that's the natural tendency of the mind again. This is the lawfulness of the mind, that it moves toward what it believes brings happiness and away from what it it believes brings pain. That's actually why our minds gravitate toward the defilements, because we mistakenly think they're going to bring us happiness. There's this kind of basic ignorance. We're confused about their effect. We're confused about what they're actually doing to our minds. We think that there's potential in them. We think that they have something to offer, so we move towards them. It's not actually that we're seeking pain. We're not actually masochists. It's just that we spend a lifetime misunderstanding what's going on in the mind, misunderstanding how the various forces of the mind are operating. So the more clearly we see the defilements, the more we come to understand their true nature, to really understand what they're doing to us. And we naturally become disillusioned with them. 
and the more our mind will naturally tend to let go of them as we become disillusioned with them. So we don't have to forcibly eradicate them or destroy them. Wisdom will automatically direct the mind away from them. It's like how once we learn what poison ivy or poison oak looks like and what its effects are, then we naturally avoid it. You know, when we're walking through the woods and we see some poison ivy, we don't have to debate, well, hmm, should I pick that poison ivy? Should I bring it home with me? We just avoid it. When we see it, we know. We don't have to think about it. Of course, if we're not paying attention, then we may still stumble into it. And conversely, the more we recognize and learn about the factors of enlightenment from watching them in our minds, the more we come to appreciate them and develop a taste for them. It's ironic that these factors of enlightenment are actually a bit of an acquired taste for most of us. Especially in our society here, we really tend to be trained from childhood to have a taste for excitement, for intensity, for stimulation. And the message all around us is that the way to find happiness is to be really constantly excited, constantly pleased, constantly stimulated. So the more subtle happiness of peace and freedom is not actually where most of us are used to looking for for freedom, for happiness. It's not even how most of us are used to thinking about what happiness is. So there's a real shift in our perspective and our understanding that needs to happen. But as we sit and we walk and we're quiet and we pay attention, it starts to dawn on us that the kind of quiet happiness that comes with the factors of enlightenment is actually far superior to the kind of frantic excitement that comes from the constant pursuit of pleasure and the flight from pain. And as with everything else in this practice, that's not an intellectual kind of understanding. It's a different kind of knowing. It's not a decision that we come to, or an opinion, or a view, although we may also have that opinion and that view. And it may start out that way, just with an intellectual understanding, which is fine. But the transformative kind of knowing is really a visceral knowledge, something that we know in our bones, something that we know from our own direct experience, from seeing it firsthand, from our own hard-won wisdom. And over the long run, it changes the whole way that we relate to this experience of our lives. It changes the whole way we understand what's possible in life and what life is. Thousands, uh, millions really, probably of people over the centuries, over the millennia, during the dispensation of this Buddha, have cultivated these qualities of mind and suffered less in their lives as a result. And we have absolute confidence that you can do it too. We wouldn't be up here doing this if we didn't. We wouldn't bother. And the staff and everyone who supports the center wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they didn't have that confidence too. They wouldn't bother. And the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, as it's related in the suttas, was tempted not to teach. He thought it would be too much of a bother. But fortunately, one of the devas visited him and convinced him out of compassion to offer this teaching because there were beings that could benefit, because this was within our potential. It was possible. And on some level, whether you realize it or not, you too have this confidence that it's possible to transform the mind. It's possible to recondition the mind. It's possible to learn a different way to be, or else you wouldn't be here either. You wouldn't bother. It's a lot of work to be here. And if you didn't have that fundamental faith on some level that it was possible, that there was this potential, you wouldn't be here. So to honor that faith in yourself and to uh, allow it to inspire you on your path. I'll finish just by reading a short poem by Wendell Berry. This is called The Wild Geese. Horseback on Sunday morning, harvest over, we taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over the fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith, 
what we need is here. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and deny clear. What we need is here. Let's just sit for a moment. We pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.